Tonight we're continuing our study of the prophecy of Isaiah, and we're getting into a new section of Isaiah, chapter 13 through chapter 23, basically have 11 chapters that are focused on God's judgment against other nations outside of Israel and Judah. And pretty much so far, we've been taking, you know, pretty small sections of Isaiah, uh, sometimes maybe just one chapter or even part of a chapter. But as we move into this section of Isaiah, I'm going to try to cover a little bit more ground more quickly, so larger chunks. And the reason I want to do that is because really a lot of the themes end up being similar, repeating themselves as the different messages are given by Isaiah to the different nations. And so I don't want it to become too repetitive. And so I'm not going to get as detailed as maybe we might in other sections of Isaiah. And so tonight we're going to begin to look at the first message of Isaiah to one of these foreign nations, and it's directed against Babylon, chapter 13 and chapter 14. And I don't know how well you can see this. I tried to blow it up as big as I could. I I borrowed this from one of the books that I was using. But he does a good job of kind of showing the, the structure of the first 27 chapters of Isaiah and how the, the focus of Isaiah broadens as you move forward in Isaiah. And so in chapters 1 through 12, he's pretty much focused on just the Lord's people in Judah. But then here in chapter 13, we see him expanding out his horizon to look at some of the surrounding nations around Israel and Judah. And then in chapter 24 through 27, we have a language that's even bigger than that, that uh, isn't just directed to individual nations around Judah and Israel, but really it's directed to the whole world. And so we see kind of this broadening horizon from Isaiah's perspective as we move forward in in the book. And the section that we're in right now, this is even smaller. I apologize for that, but I'm just copying and pasting here, trying to blow it up as much as I could. But this is the section that we're looking at right now from chapter 13 through chapter 23. And if you can see that far and see the print that small, you've got all the nations listed there that that he addresses. And so you've got Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, which Damascus would have been Syria, just to the north of Israel. Then in the middle, you've got kind of a broad address to many nations And then you've got another list on the other side with Sedan. In the Bible, it's called Cush, uh, which is an area just below Egypt. Then you have Egypt, Edom, Arabia, and then Jerusalem is even included in um, in these addresses to the nations, and then Tyre. So if you look at that list, even if you're not super familiar with the geography of where all of those places are, you can see that they're pretty much the places that are around Israel and Judah, pretty much on all sides. And these are the places that that would have had the biggest impact on Judah's experience day to day. And at different times in history, these are the peoples that have oppressed them. So you've got the Philistines. You, know, you read in Judges and in the books of Samuel, especially 
that they were always seemed to be at war with the Philistines. You've got Moab and the Edomites. You've got Egypt to the south. You've got Assyria and Babylon. All of these places had, had been uh, oppressors of God's people. And so these are messages directed to them. But the interesting thing about, about Isaiah is that it's not as if these other nations are going to receive these words of Isaiah. So Isaiah 13 and 14 is about Babylon, but Isaiah is not sending a letter to Babylon with this message in it. Who is the message directed to? It's directed to God's people still, right? So, so Isaiah is still a prophet to Judah, to the people of, of God. But all of these oracles, all these speeches are about the other nations around them. And there's a particular reason why Isaiah is doing this, is he is showing that, that God is the Lord, that he is sovereign. And all of this fits into, especially like in chapter 12, where we see just a, a very bright future, a very hopeful future laid out for the people of God. Well, in order for that bright future to unfold, God's going to have to do something about all these enemies that, that, are, that have been oppressing them for generations. And so that's the purpose of these oracles, is to show that God has not forgotten about any of these enemies any of these oppressors, and God's going to take care of them in his own time as the just and righteous Lord that he is. So I want to just kind of briefly run through these chapters tonight, and here's kind of the structure of what we'll do. So first of all, we'll ask the question, why, why is this here? Why does Isaiah have all these oracles against the other nations? And then we'll look at the message itself, God's judgment against the Babylonians. So first of all, why these oracles against the nations? And one of the reasons is because these other nations were, they, they were a challenge to the Messianic kingdom. As I was mentioning a moment ago, at different places in Isaiah 1 through 12, Isaiah has described a, uh, a future kingdom of peace, of hope, of, of glory. And these nations stood in the way of that kingdom unfolding. And so you had the challenge of these earthly kingdoms. At different times, these different nations were in power. Right now, in Isaiah's day, Assyria is the one that is probably the most dominant nation in the region. But at other times, Egypt has been very dominant. Babylon is going to become dominant in the very near future. So you've got all of these nations that have been very strong, very influential in the region. And in comparison to Israel and Judah, all of these nations have been stronger. And so you look at this little kingdom of Judah, just the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And you've got them in this little area of Judea where Bethlehem and Jerusalem are. And then you're talking about this big language of God establishing a kingdom that is going to become a kingdom for the world. And if you're living at that day, your mind is probably thinking, yeah, but what about Egypt? What about Babylon? What about Assyria? They're, they're much stronger than we are. How, how is this going to happen? And so Isaiah is going to show that the Lord is in charge over all of these other kingdoms and he'll bring in his kingdom in his time. But then you also have the challenge of other gods. 
because in the ancient world, the nations had, obviously, all the other nations, they worshiped many gods, right? So except Judah and God's people who were monotheistic, that is worshiping one God, the other nations around them were polytheistic, that is worshiping many gods. But even though they were polytheistic, many of these nations tended to have a primary God that was kind of like the chief of their gods. And so, for example, the Assyrians worshipped the god Ashur. The Babylonians worshipped the chief god Bel. You can even see that in the name that they give to Daniel in, um, in the book of Daniel. Daniel's alternate name is Belteshazzar. So named after their god, Bel. So the Babylonians worshipped Bel. Other times his name is called Marduk. The Syrians had a god named Adad. The Moabites had a god named Chemosh. The Ammonites had Milcom. The Philistines had Dagon. Uh, the Phoenicians and the Canaanites had Baal or Baal. So they had all of these gods. And the way that the ancient mind thought of these gods is if our army defeated your army, that meant that our God was stronger than your God. And so here is Judah who worshiped Yahweh, the Lord alone, but they were being oppressed. They were being attacked. They were being captured and taken into captivity by these other nations. Does that mean that their gods are stronger than the one true God? And Isaiah is going to answer that question in these oracles. No, the Lord is stronger. There is really only one Lord of all the earth. So challenges to the kingdom, but then also just challenges to God's sovereignty that, that Isaiah needs to show in these messages about the other nations that kingdoms rise and fall. But really there's one king that matters. And that is the Lord who rules over everything. So a dominant theme of all of these chapters is the sovereignty of the Lord that the Lord does what he wants to do. He speaks, he declares, and it happens. He knows the end from the beginning. And he is more powerful than the mightiest kings. He, he allows them to rise and he puts them down when it fits in accordance with his will. So these are important themes that, that Isaiah is going to address in these chapters. And so beginning in chapter 13, then, we have God's judgment of Babylon. And if you think about it, why... Why start with Babylon? Why start with Babylon? Because in chapters 1 through 12, Babylon really hasn't been the major focus yet. Assyria has been the, the stronger focus. And so why begin with Babylon? And then we'll divide the, the talk up into two sections, basically. Chapter 13, which is Babylon's destruction. And then chapter 14, which is really kind of a taunt in the form of poetry or a song against the king of Babylon. So first of all, why begin with Babylon? One, you know, you would think it would be Assyria because in chapter 7, uh, chapter 9, uh, the primary threat was Assyria. So Babylon really isn't the strongest power yet. Assyria is really the one that is still dominant on the historical scene. So why Babylon? And probably the reason is, is because Isaiah has been given a prophetic perspective, hasn't he? So Isaiah knows that Assyria 
is strong now, but through the prophetic perspective that God has given to him, he knows that Assyria is going to fall. In fact, he's already prophesied about that, that the Lord's going to judge Assyria. So he turns then to the one who conquered Assyria, which is Babylon, who is coming very soon in the future. And I think the other reason why he specifically targets Babylon at the beginning of these messages to the nations is because Babylon ended up being the greater threat to Judah. Assyria put pressure on Judah and they attacked them at different times, but they never conquered them. Babylon is going to conquer them. Babylon's going to defeat Jerusalem and take them into captivity back to Babylon. And so that may be why he's addressing his attention there first. But in chapter 13, he describes Babylon's destruction. And before we read through the passage and just make a few comments along the way, I kind of want to give you a couple of highlights before we did that. And the first highlight is that chapter 13 describes the fall of Babylon as being the work of many nations. So, so Babylon is going to rise to power. Babylon is going to exert its strength and might against other nations. But when the time comes for God to judge Babylon, he's going to rally the troops, if you will. And all of the nations, all of the peoples who had been oppressed by Babylon, they're now going to have the opportunity to see their downfall and to partake in that downfall. And so these nations, they would form a coalition to bring down Babylon. And those who had suffered under them, they would have the joy of participating in seeing its downfall. So that's one of the themes in chapter 13, is the joining together of peoples to defeat Babylon, which points out another more important theological theme, doesn't it? And that is the sovereignty of God. That all of this that's going on in world history, all of this that's happening on the earthly plane of view, this nation, this nation, this, this political action over here, this king, all of that is under the providence of God, isn't it? So he's going to draw these peoples together to defeat Babylon, but that shows just how sovereign God is over the nations. And then another theme that, that pops up very prominently in chapter 13, and it's a theme that pops up all across the prophets, is this theme of the day of the Lord. We see this almost everywhere in the prophets. All the major prophetic books talk about this theme, the day of the Lord. What is this? What is this day of the Lord? Some people, when they hear day of the Lord, they think no, it's, it's only that unique, special day at the end of time, the day of the Lord. For example, the New Testament, Peter and Paul describe the day of the Lord, still future so sometimes we think of the day of the Lord as something that's only at the end of history associated with the second coming of Christ. That's only partially true because the day of the Lord is a much bigger theme than that. And we see, for example, in the Old Testament that the day of the Lord, this phrase could be applied to other actions of God as well, not just at the end of time, but also closer in the future to the prophet's own time. And so this destruction of Babylon 
is described as a day of the Lord, but it's not a destruction that's going to happen at the end of time. It's a destruction that's going to happen within the next few centuries of Isaiah's own day. And so he describes it as the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, it's, it's not a 24-hour period, so it's not a literal 24-hour day, but it describes a period of time in which God works his purposes in a very particular distinctive way in the heavens and on earth. Another way of thinking about this is the day of the Lord is when God shows up to do something big. And so it's, it's something particularly striking in, in world history where God is involved in the affairs of men. And when we see this in scripture, it usually involves a few key elements. The day of the Lord might have all three of these elements as it's described by the prophets, or it might just have one of these. It just, it varies depending on how the prophets use this theme. But these are the, these are the, the elements that tend to show up. The day of the Lord can be and often is God's judgment against unbelievers. God's judgment against his enemies. It can also, in, in conjunction with the day of the Lord, be a time for cleansing and purging his own people, of, of purifying them. And then also then through that purification results in their salvation. So those are the themes that tend to show up. It's, it's God judging his enemies, but then at the same time, sometimes his, his anger is being directed towards his own people, but for the sake of cleansing them and purifying them. And then also God, in judging his enemies, at the same time, the other side of the coin of that is he's saving his people. He's rescuing his people. So those are the themes that tend to show up in the day of the Lord. And so let's kind of run through Isaiah 13, and I'm not going to comment on every verse in detail, but I just kind of want to want you to get the feel for this message of judgment against Babylon. So a prophecy against Babylon that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. Raise a banner on a bare hilltop, shout to them, beckon to them to enter the gates of the nobles. Just two things here. Notice the plural, that there's a call going out to many, to them. And also notice the idea of a banner. And a banner is the idea of a signal, a rallying point. And so this is where, uh, what I mentioned earlier, the, the joining together of many nations to come together and see Babylon's downfall. That's where this comes into play. I have commanded those I prepared for battle. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath, those who rejoice in my triumph. This is the sovereignty of God causing many peoples and nations to come together for the common purpose of defeating Babylon. Listen, a noise on the mountains like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms like nations massing together. There you can see it more clearly, right? These other nations joining together for the fall of Babylon. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. And there's the sovereignty of God, right? Because these armies joining together, that's not just a a human activity, but it's taking place on a divine perspective as well. That the Lord is over this. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens. 
the Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. Which country? Well, verse 1 told us, because this whole speech is about Babylon. So all of these nations coming together are to defeat Babylon. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. There's this theme that's prominent then in a, a large portion of chapter 13. The day of the Lord, it's near, it's on the horizon. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. And so in this particular case, the day of the Lord means judgment for the enemies of God. Judgment on Babylon. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every heart will melt with fear. Very descriptive in the fear and the terror that the Babylonians will feel. Those who were once high and mighty are going to be brought low in humiliation and terror. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. In other words, they'll be completely defeated, completely at an end of themselves. They'll be terrified. Nothing to do. Nothing that they can do to stop what the Lord is doing. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day, with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. So you can see there very clearly the purpose of the day of the Lord is to execute judgment against the sinful people of Babylon. And it's coming. It's heavy. God's wrath and anger. But it's just, isn't it? It's just and it's righteous because the Babylonians have been wicked. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I just want to pause here because this is one of the reasons why sometimes interpreters think that this is talking about the end of time. Because whenever we see this kind of like cosmic type language, we think that this is end of the world type stuff. But it's very clear in the context that Isaiah is talking about the fall of, of the Babylon in his day. And, and the Babylonian empire that is about to arise in the very near future. And in fact, we know from history that Babylon did fall. Babylon did fall. They were conquered by the Medes. And the Medes came in and overtook Babylon and by about 200 BC, Babylon was no longer inhabited. It was a wasteland. And then for about the next 2,000 years, nobody set foot in Babylon again. And then only in about the 1800s was Babylon rediscovered, and only by means of archaeology was Babylon re re rediscovered. And so this prophecy is about what's going to happen to Babylon in the next couple of centuries after Isaiah's time. And so then what is this big, huge cosmic language then about the stars and the moon not giving their light? I think it's primarily poetical, it's figurative, and it's intended to show how dark, how, how destructive, how huge this defeat is going to be from the hands of the Lord. And so I take this as kind of just raising the, the emphasis of, of how, how, how heavy this destruction is going to be. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. 
I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. This is God's general pattern. Verse 11, where it says, I punish the world for its evil. So God's, God's a judge of all the earth, isn't he? He will judge all sinners everywhere, wherever they're found. But in this particular speech of Isaiah, it's directed against Babylon. I will make people scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. And this most likely is communicating just how devastating um, the defeat of Babylon will be and how many losses they will incur in their defeat. Many, many people will die. And so people will be scarce. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble. The earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Like a hunted gazelle, like sheep without a shepherd, they will all return to their own people. They will flee to their native land. And the the picture there is of chaos, of of people fleeing, of, of running away. People without a shepherd, not knowing where they're going, but just trying to get away from the devastation. Whoever is captured will be thrust through. All who are caught will, f- will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be looted and their wives violated. That's strong language, isn't it? That is very strong language. We think, wow, that, that is, that's, that's very, very graphic in its description. And it's, it's heavy to think about children dying. And, and these kinds of atrocities taking place. But this is the kind of stuff that happened all over the ancient world. And, and by the way, this is the kind of stuff that Babylon did to other peoples. And so all this is really saying is that the violence and the bloodshed that Babylon did to others, it's going to come back on their own head. And in fact, I think it's Psalm 137 might be wrong about that, but Psalm 137 is an imprecatory psalm that actually speaks in this language of their, their infants of the Babylonians being dashed against the rocks, of the Lord executing his judgment on this wicked people. And so basically this is their violence coming back around on them. See, I will stir up against them the Medes. And here Isaiah gets specific. This is how it's going to happen. These are the people that are going to defeat you. The Medes. The Medes were a people to a little bit to the east of the Babylonians. And so a little bit more over toward, uh, toward India from, from uh, Babylon. But the Medes were going to come and they were going to defeat them. And this says they don't care for silver. They don't have any delight in gold. In other words, they're not coming just to loot you. They're coming to destroy you. Their bows will strike down the young men. They will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on children. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. So you can see the great downfall there. You can see this theme of pride being brought low. That the Babylonians thought of themselves as so great, so rich, so powerful, and God's going to bring them to nothing. And he compares it to the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis. 
She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. There no nomads will pitch their tents. There no shepherds will rest their flocks. And that, that's what I was alluding to in the defeat of Babylon. Now, it didn't happen immediately when the Medes and the Persians took over Babylon, but it eventually happened. And Babylon became a wasteland. And nobody inhabited it for centuries. Still, really, nobody's living there. Now it's just interesting to archaeologists. But desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill their houses. There the owls will dwell, and there the wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will inhabit her strongholds, jackals her luxurious palaces. Her time is at hand, and her days will not be prolonged. In other words, God's not, God is going to come a time when God will no longer have any long-suffering. No more delays, no more mercy, and it's at hand. And so Babylon's going to fall. And then we see a taunt, chapter 14. And it's kind of in the form of a, a poem or a song. And it's basically, you know what a taunt is, right? A taunt is kind of like making fun of someone for either what they are or what they were and, and kind of reveling in their downfall. So it's kind of a taunt against Babylon in its pride. And 14, 1 to 2 describes some good news for Judah. And that is good news, right? Because if Babylon is falling, that's good news for the ones that Babylon had been oppressing. And so verses 1 and 2 say, The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Foreigners will join them and unite with the descendants of Jacob. And so he's going to restore Judah again. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place. And Israel will take possession of the nations and make them male and female servants in the Lord's land. They will make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. In other words, what's going to happen to Judah? They're going to go into exile, but then God's going to drastically reverse those fortunes, isn't he? And he's going to make Judah a place where they will be in a place of glory and ruling and others coming to them. And then we see this taunt, this song against the king of Babylon. On the day the Lord gives you relief from your suffering and turmoil and from the harsh labor forced on you. This is speaking to the people of Judah. When God gives you relief, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. And here's the taunt. How the oppressor has come to an end. How his fury has ended. Almost kind of like, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Right? How the mighty have come down. The Lord has broken the rod of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. And the idea here of rod and scepter is the idea of rulership, of authority, um, but also of the rod of chastisement, right? And the Lord's going to take that symbol of authority, that symbol of discipline, of chastisement, that Babylonian wielded over all the peoples, and he's going to break it. No more rod and scepter for Babylon which in anger struck down peoples. Babylon struck down peoples with unceasing blows and in fury subdued nations with relentless aggression. That's how Babylon treated other peoples. But now they're going to fall. All the lands are at rest and at peace, and they break into singing when Babylon falls. Even the junipers and the cedars of Lebanon gloat over you and say, now that you have been laid low, no one comes to cut us down. One of the, the marks of glory, of boasting, 
by some of these ancient peoples was when they could come in and conquer Lebanon and cut down all of its beautiful cedar trees. And so in reversal now, the cedars of Lebanon are going to say, here we are, and you're not going to come cut us down to the Babylonians. The realm of the dead below is all astir to meet you at your coming. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you. All those who were leaders in the world, it makes them rise from their thrones. All those who were kings over the nations. This is a powerful verse. Basically, what this is saying is all of the world leaders who have lived before you and who have come and gone and who are now dead and buried. They're going to rise up and they're going to mock you in your defeat when you come to join them in the realm of the dead. It's a very powerful description of the sovereignty of God, isn't it? Because these rulers, they rise and fall and history is littered with the fall of rulers. And here they all are, all dead and buried. And Isaiah is describing them very poetically as having a welcome party for the king of Babylon when he too is defeated and joins them in death. They will all respond. They will say to you, you also have become weak as we are. You have become like us. So welcome into death. Welcome into defeat. Is what they're going to be saying to the king of Babylon. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave Along with the noise of your harps, maggots are spread out beneath you and worms cover you. Verses like this is what makes the prophets so popular, right? (laughs) Reading about maggots and worms. What is this describing? It's describing their bodily decay after their death, isn't it? As, As the king of Babylon is dead and he is decaying, maggots and worms come. And that's the, that's the picture of his defeat. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. In other words, incredibly great arrogance and pride brought low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Boy, that's incredibly arrogant, isn't it? Saying, I'll be like God. I'll rise to the heavens. But in this taunt, God is saying, you're going to fall. You're going to be brought low. You're brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? In other words, is this the great king of Babylon that now is nothing? The man who made the world a wilderness, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home. Is this that great king of Babylon who's now fallen? All the kings of the nations lie in state, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch. You're covered with the slain with those pierced by the sword, those who descend to the stones of the pit like a corpse trampled underfoot. In other words, king of Babylon, you're not, you're not even going to get the honor of proper burial and honor when you die. All these other kings, they lie in state. They have their tombs and their memorial tombs. But king of Babylon, you're going to be like just thrown out into the field, trampled. You will not join them in burial, for you have destroyed your land and killed your people. Let the offspring of the wicked never be mentioned again. 
So all in great pride, you wanted a name for yourself, but now your name's going to be forgotten. Prepare a place to slaughter his children for the sins of their ancestors. They're not to rise to inherit the land and cover the earth with their cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord Almighty. I will wipe out Babylon's name and survivors, her offspring and descendants, declares the Lord. I will turn her into a place for owls and into swampland. I will sweep her with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord Almighty. So the total destruction. And one of the great themes of this chapter is pride humbled. Great arrogance brought low. One of the questions that I wanted to address as we kind of finish this up is an interpretation question that arises in verses 12 through 14. And that is, who is this morning star? Who is this son of the dawn? We saw back in verses 12 through 14, this incredibly lofty language of, I will ascend to the heavens. I will be like the most high. And there is a very, very old and and long-standing tradition in the Christian church and in Christian theology that those verses are a reference to Satan. Uh, this description of the son of the dawn, or and some even gleaned from that, the, the Latin or the Greek name Lucifer. So son of the dawn or 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 the, the one who is light. And so they, they see in this incredibly lofty description, perhaps a personification of Satan and of his fall. So where we see uh, it saying, I'm going to ascend to the heavens. I'm going to build my throne on high. I'm going to become like the most high, incredibly arrogant and prideful language. And then it says, but you're going to be brought low. You're going to be cast down to the earth. And so some take that as a reference to Satan. But one of the things that we need to ask is in understanding it is what, what do those verses mean in the context of Isaiah chapter 14? In Isaiah 14, there is, there is clear indication that it's talking about the king of Babylon, isn't it? So it's talking about the king of Babylon. And so the immediate context would suggest that this is talking about a historical figure, the king of Babylon, who was very prideful and then who was brought low in his defeat. But then some would argue, but what about this really high and lofty language about being like God, about being like the most high, about exalting his throne to the heavens? Well, we actually do have examples from from history, from archaeology, especially in Assyria and some from Babylon, where we see kings talking this high, talking of themselves as if they were gods, as if they were like gods. In fact, the book of Daniel even describes very lofty language like this of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar saying things like, what God is there who is able to stand against me? We see Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, building this tall statue to himself, right? To bow down and worship. Clearly thought of himself as a god. He thought of himself as superior to the gods. He thought of himself as superior, certainly, to the God of Israel. And so it's really not unusual at all from what we know from the ancient world for a king like this to, to speak of himself in this almost deified language of I'll be like God. And then another question is Is there any indication in the New Testament that any of the New Testament writers 
understood Isaiah chapter 14 in that way as a reference to Satan. And really, there's no, there's no clear quotation or allusion to Isaiah 14 in the New Testament that's taken that way. Probably the closest one that we have is in Luke, I believe it's chapter 12, where it says, I saw Satan falling from heaven. That's probably the closest one. But, but the language there is not really that close to the language that we see in Isaiah 14. And so if we wanted to take it as kind of like poetic language descriptive of the fall of Satan, you know, that would be, that would be fine. But I think in the context, it is, its meaning is the king of Babylon. And, and the king of Babylon's incredible arrogance and pride that is brought low by the Lord of all the earth. So let's, let's finish out with just a few kind of big themes or lessons from chapter 13 and chapter 14. One of them is clearly God is opposed to the proud and he'll humble the proud, won't he? That's a theme all across scripture, isn't it? God humbles the proud, but he exalts the lowly. God judges wickedness. God is not going to endure very long the evil and the wickedness of people, especially like the Babylonians who are incredibly violent and oppressive. God judges wickedness. God is sovereign over the nations. All, all of these things that are happening in the world, God rules over. And he is arranging and moving all of these pieces of history to accomplish his purposes. He can even rally the nations to join together to accomplish his purposes in defeating Babylon. The Lord is the only true God. All these other would-be gods, these false gods, they're nothing. There's one Lord who rules over everything. And the lesson of all of this to God's people is the Lord is the one whom you should trust. Because he's the only one that can deliver you. You can try to put your trust in the king of Assyria or in the king of Babylon. You can look to them for help. You can look to them to bail you out of a troublesome situation. But the message of Isaiah over and over again to the king and to the people is there's one whom you should rely on. And that's the Lord. Because he's the sovereign Lord of history.